Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. That which yields is not always weak. Choose your victories wisely. Hyacinth from Kushiel's Dark. Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. This is episode 21. I'm G. I'm M. And today we're going to be talking about Kushiel's Dart by Jacqueline Carey. Which for our listeners is a book, is a novel, which was written in 2001. And we did want to just give a short little content warning. While we're not going to be talking about any of this in detail in this episode... If you do plan to go and read this book, we just wanted to let people know that there is going to be uh, sexual assaults, so just be aware of that if you do choose to read the book. Additionally, uh, we are going to there are going to be some spoilers in this discussion about the book, but we are going to try to keep the discussion as spoiler-free as possible, though of course we can't guarantee that you won't learn some plot details by listening to us. But I think we're going to try to keep it, we're trying to keep the story as much of a mystery as possible. Alright, so just to start out this episode, I want to say that from my perspective, Kushiel's Dart is a really unique book. And it is one of three, so it's in a trilogy. And there's also two other trilogies that are sort of set in the same world. A trilogy of trilogies, you might A say. trilogy of trilogies. Nine total books in this trilogy, which would make sense. Three times three. That's how that works. Yes. So I, f- I found that it's hard to basically impossible to find anything that's quite like this book. All right. Do you want to expand upon that? Sure. Yeah. So the genre, first off, is sort of an alternative historical novel meets fantasy, which is just an interesting combination. Normally, you get one, you get the other... Very rarely do you get this specific blend of genres. So I think that it's a really creative, sort of interesting approach. And it also adds all of this kinky stuff. Yeah. The main character... (laughs) God damn it! (laughs) Fedra. Fedra, yep. Fedra? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So, listeners, as you might have gathered from that awkward moment, there's a lot of names in this book which don't have a uh, one-to-one analogy to names in the real world. So, a lot of the ways I was pronouncing things in my head as I was reading this book are not the ways that M was pronouncing it. No, and actually, I have a little bit of a better sense of how to pronounce some of the main characters and the locations because they are based off of French. And so they're actually, I mean, they're directly taken from French. When I say based off of, I mean, they're taken directly from French. So that's something, again, that mixes like real world stuff with fiction. Yes. Because French in this novel is not called French. No. But yes, so the main place where it takes place is on this, is in this place called... 
Are you really going to throw it to me? I'm really throwing it to G because I want him to say how he thought it was pronounced. All right. Uh, I thought it was pronounced Terra d'Ange. Right. Which is close. Uh, because I saw these various apostrophes, which I'm used to, because of my background, I'm used to those apostrophes standing in for glottal stops. So I was adding in lots of glottal stops, which apparently is how nobody else does it. <laughs> right. So... No, that's totally valid. If you're reading this and you have no other context, then it makes sense that if you think of those apostrophes as being glottal stops, you're going to throw them in. So for me, because I, I have a background in French, I knew that it was terre d'ange. And so, and Phedra, which is, you know, another tricky one. So there's a lot of French in the book. And the main character, so you have said Phedra. Yes. You were going to elaborate. Maybe I shouldn't take that from you. I've completely forgotten what I was going to talk about. Okay, well, I will just say that she is what the book calls an anglicette. For our listeners, I, I mean, I'm sorry, we've been trying to change listeners to something else. For our audience, right? Is that what we're going with? Until we think of peers? No, that's weird because of no peers, right? Yeah. We decided that was weird. Um, audience. Audience is fine. It's fine for right now. For right now. Um... By the way, if you have an alternative suggestion right, yes. for what you'd like us to refer to you as, the reason why we're trying to step away from the listener's uh, use is because somebody pointed out on Twitter that this is somewhat ableist language, and that there are plenty of people who are hard of hearing who also do appreciate podcasts. So we're going to be trying to navigate towards a Something a little bit snappier than audience member. But. Right. For now, audience, though. I originally read this book when I was much younger. I'm going to say it was at least seven years ago. And I've now read reread it. But I didn't just reread it this time. I also listened. It was part reading and part I listened to the audiobook. And I hadn't listened to the audiobook before. And I will say that the narrator of the audiobook, she does a pretty good job. But even she didn't pronounce things exactly how I had anticipated them. And so she pronounces um, Anguiset as Angiset. So another way of saying it. But that basically in this society, an Angiset or Anguiset is a masochist, a physical masochist. Do you want to explain well, a little bit? Yes. It's a magical masochist. Yeah, a magical masochist. Which I did. This is kind of one note of criticism that popped up in my reading. So we'll get more into depth, but my reading of this book is very different from the last time I read this book. I haven't read reread this book since the first time I went through this first trilogy, but this did sort of niggle in my mind when I read this because there's a point where Fedra goes to the goes to the house to learn goes to one of the houses which are basically a uh, upscale brothels essentially to learn more about being an anguisette and about you know taking pain and it turning into pleasure and basically the people who are in the i'm forgetting the name of the house but basically the masochist house are like oh you're the only real masochist we all just are trained yes they are like, they have associations that are made over time yes and it's like well you know there are I understand what you're getting at, but also there are also people who just enjoy pain without it being a magical thing. 
For sure, but this is a fantasy novel. This is a fantasy novel, yes. So we, I think we have to take all of these things, all of these different things that come up, these different concepts um, in terms of sexuality and kink and everything as being fantastical concepts in the novel. Yeah. Because that's what they are. Mm-hmm. So that didn't really bother me so much because it was setting, it takes our paradigm of kink and it changes it. So to give a little bit more background... I wanted to talk about the, just to set the stage sort of, mm-hmm. the sort of gods that this society believes in, the culture. Yes. Because I think that's important. Yes. So do you want to talk about Eloa and who is he and... So just setting uh, some of the background, as M said, this novel is set in an alternate history that is also fantastical. So there is a... They have their own version of of Jesus uh, called Yeshua. Yeshua, yeah. Who dies... By crucifixion. By crucifixion. And essentially, as his blood hits the ground, a new being is formed called Eloa. It's not only his blood, it's his blood meeting the tears of Mary Magdalene, right? Essentially, they're Mary Magdalene. I thought that was... I thought it was Mother Earth instead. Oh, was it Mother Earth? Okay, I thought it was a Mary Magdalene reference there. Okay, so go ahead. So a new new person. A new person. Demigod. Yeah, uh, emerges. And basically some angels that used to serve God now decide to follow Eloa. And they eventually end up in what would later be known as... Terdange. Terdange, thank you. It's really hard for me to, like, get over the pronunciation in my mind. Terdange, and they proceed to commingle with the humans of the land. Create basically a whole generation after generation of angelically... Imbued humans? Imbued humans, yeah. And eventually, through some sort of deal between Earth and God... The one God. The one God... They get to have their own separate heaven. Yes. Which is separate from the one god's heaven. Right. Yes, because the one god comes to Eloa and offers him to come to his heaven, or to their heaven. I think his in the novel. But Eloa actually refuses. He takes the dagger that Cassiel, who is another angel, and cuts his hand and basically says, like, well, your heaven is bloodless, but mine is not like i am i am an earthly being so yes there is a new heaven that's sort of created so religiously this is super fascinating for me i love that it plays on jesus's story i love that jesus now has this weird demigod son being then the other angels like nama who is the sort of goddess of sexuality if you will yes so these various Angels become gods in their own rights, worshipped as gods in their own rights, the ones that follow Eloa. And Kushiel is one of these angels, and she is supposed to be the one who punishes people for trespasses. I thought it was more of a masculine figure, but I could have been wrong. Uh... Is it a feminine figure for Kushiel? 
I have no Nam- Nama is more feminine, and I thought Kushiel was the more masculine. With the exception of that one duke, everybody we meet who's associated with Kushiel is a feminine person, so I might be wrong about that. Yes, I think Kushiel is more of a masculine okay. being, but I could be wrong also. But yes, yeah, so... Go ahead. So Kushiel... I go with they. Their whole shtick is that they punish people for wrongdoing, but... The people that Kushio punishes crave punishment in order to feel right with themselves, in order to earn their forgiveness, essentially. So Kushio's dart is a little moat in... A red moat. A red moat in Phaedra's eye that marks Phaedra as a anguisette. Right. So yes, it is a little bit of magical masochism. And yes, there are, of course... Of course, we are a kinky podcast, and obviously there are people out there who just love being hurt, hurt, and that's cool, and they get off on it. But in this magical setting, you either get this moat, and that's very rare, by the way. She's very rare for having this. Or you are sort of trained on how to convert pain to pleasure and vice versa. And so there is a quote from the book from that house that you were talking about, Valerian House, that I wanted to bring up. Never is a fosterling or apprentice of apprentice of Valerian House allowed to experience pleasure without pain, nor pain without pleasure. And so even when they are eating foods, they describe like, you know, as they eat foods, they also have spicy food. Because the spicy sort of has that painful element to it. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. It also should be noted that the main precept, the main commandment that Eloah gives is love as thou wilt. So this is extremely important in their society. And I think it's really important for understanding the kinky and sexual elements of the novel. So for example, sexual assault is blasphemous because Eloah Basically, this precept means everybody needs to be on board. Consent is super important. Yes. One thing that all of the servants of Nama, who are the priests, priestesses, and slash, priests and priestesses, yeah, uh, slash sex workers, they all get to have safe words written into their contracts. And if that safe word is not adhered to, that is religious blasphemy. It's also illegal. Yes. So they will be convicted. So, yeah, safe wording, I thought that that was really interesting because we did an episode on Fifty Shades of Grey, of course, very early on in this podcast, and the idea of consent is not really well handled in that book. Yeah. Could have been better. But I think that this book does a pretty interesting job of, like, incorporating it into the story and being like, consent is important, and safe words are important. Yeah, they're also... I think there are aspects that I am willing to accept in Kushiel's Dart that I would not accept in in something like Fifty Shades of Grey because Fifty Shades of Grey is trying to portray a modern day... Like real BDSM relationship. Real BDSM slash DS dynamic. While this is not trying to do that. This is saying this is an alternate history that's set somewhere around the 14 to 1600s. Waving my arms to try to convey the... Yeah. Trying to convey the uncertainty of time. 
So there are some things that happen in this book where it's like, if they had been portrayed in Fifty Shades of Grey, it's like, that would have been not okay. But since they're being portrayed in the sort of alternate society, it's got different mores, and it's not trying to show a realistic relationship I'm willing to accept from this book. And still, even though it does have room to play around, it does still talk about negotiating. Like, we often see these characters, so like when a servant of Nama, a sex worker, goes to have, like, essentially a scene or a a night with someone, they talk about what's on the table. And they sort of negotiate that. And there is a contract that's sort of written up. So that's interesting. And then also, as we've been talking about sex workers, really the theme of this book, as I read it now, is like, sex worker saves the day. Yeah, It is a heroic novel about a sex worker who uses her femininity to be heroic. Yeah, in some ways it would be somewhat similar to Firefly if Anara was the main character of Firefly. Right. And that's a great analogy, actually, and we just had the Firefly episode. Yes. I will just chime in with some of X's thoughts here, who says, My main thoughts are that I've never read a fantasy book where I related so much to the protagonist, and I really love how Fedra is able to survive and also save her kingdom because of her femininity and sex work, not in spite of it, which is really empowering. So this is a pretty, you know, badass female sex worker protagonist, which is pretty cool. So I know that one of your criticisms was that there was some bad representation, but I also think that there's some good representation. But first, I wanted to ask you about, like, your commentary about lack of representation or poor representation. Okay, so uh, like I said earlier in the podcast, the last time I read this book, I think, was over 10 years ago at this point. And as I was rereading this book to prepare for this podcast, one thing I was highly aware of was how much of a different reader I am now compared to 10-year-old me. Uh, because while ten year old me sort of enjoyed this book not ten year old you. Sorry. Ten years ago you. Ten years ago me. Thank you for catching Because up. we don't want ten year old you to read this book. Yeah. Ten years ago me enjoyed this book, but mostly just kind of enjoyed it for like the kinky stuff, because at that point I knew it was into kinky stuff and But rereading it now, I was highly aware of the fact that I was like, why is the people who are literally descended from angels magical French people. <laughs> and I was also really uncomfortable with how they were sort of portraying, I guess, what their version of the Ottoman Empire was. I'm forgetting the name right now. Okay. And, you know, the sort of whole harem sequence that Phaedra goes through to please that one guy who never got access to a harem. And uh, my understanding is it gets better in the other trilogies, but I was highly aware of the fact, like, man, there's a lot of magical white people descended from angels in this book. <laughs> yes. There is a lot of magical white people, even the way that uh, they talk about the Skaldic culture, which is sort of like the Germanic, it would be the Germanic yes. cultures, is very much like they're uncivilized, they're barbaric, they don't have any of these refined, you know, things. Which, to some degree, is kind of probably accurate about how white French people really thought about some other people yes. at that time. And it also is like, oh, that's that's a lot. That's a bit much. 
Uh, yes, but as somebody who tries to be a student of history, like I'm also aware that these places were usually a lot more diverse than authors usually give them credit for. Mm-hmm. So, let me just say, I don't think Jacqueline Carey wrote like a bad book. I don't think she... I, I think she wrote a very progressive book for a time, because this came out in 2001. 2001, so it's 19 years ago. Almost 20 years ago at this point. A very progressive book for its time. I still enjoy it, but I'm still highly aware of the fact that, you know, there are these things that are, like, niggling in the back of my brain. Sure. Of, like, uh, like, hopefully we can get some more diversity in these books as time goes on. Yes, I do think that, you know, this is an older book, 19 years ago, so, and I haven't read the newer trilogies yet, but I am curious to see how she grew as an author as well. Because just as we've grown as readers, she's probably grown as an author. Something that I did want to say that kind of bugged me, in addition to the some of the cultures that we touched on so far, is that I have really conflicted feelings to some of the cultural references, in particular with respect to the Yeshuites. The Yeshuites and the uh, the Travelers. Uh, oh yes, the hyacinths like travelers. Yeah. Yes. Uh, since both of them are are based off groups that have been oppressed for a very long time right. in Europe. <laughs> so, just to talk about the Yeshuite bit really quickly, the Yeshuites. So, in this alternative history, essentially, whoever would have been Paul, Paul the Apostle, never invented Christianity. So there is no Christianity as we know it today. There is, however, this th- these people who are um, Yeshuaites. They are what other people I've looked up, how other people are describing this. They describe them as like essentially Messianic Jews, in that they are they are culturally very Jewish in their beliefs, and even Hebrew is used in the novel, which I thought was again it's interesting because like oh that's really cool that's representation that's using this language that's like really important and this religion that's really important, but. It also is like this interesting thing where it's like they believe in Yeshua, who's essentially Jesus. So this gets really tricky. And I'm not Jewish, but I could see that if I were Jewish and I were reading this, I might have some things to say about that. Yeah. So, again, not terrible, but just a very interesting approach. Yeah, I mean, this kind of... The whole alternate history thing... Even the first time I read it was kind of a burr under my skin of like, I guess I'm I'm so used to like fancy novels and being like, seeing like illusions, like, you know, often people have some sort of, you know, some sort of like something that was like the Roman Empire that fell a long time ago. But I'm used to like, it being different enough that I'm not like seeing these constant connections. I'm not constantly referring, because I do study history a lot, like, I'm seeing these constant connections between our real history and I'm like, should I be, like, focusing more on the novel or should I be focusing more on, like, what I know from history right. to, like, draw my imagery from? And it was a burr last time. It was more of a burr this time reading it because I, I definitely was reading The Travelers as uh, Romani. Mm-hmm. And... Yes, absolutely. And I was like, man, they've got some negative stereotypes in real life and they've got some negative stereotypes in this book and it's like yes. yeah i'm not sure how comfortable i am with this exactly and... so like some of these negative stereotypes are kind of played up in the novel yes and it's like yeah I'm... if they had ri- if jacqueline carey had written it such that these were 
totally different names for these cultures, totally different languages that were being used, so that way there's much more distance created. It would have felt a little bit better, because at least then you wouldn't have to be like, oh my gosh, this is directly these people. Yeah. But in this book, you're like, oh my gosh, these are these people. So, yeah, I agree. I wanted to say that, so we talked a little bit about the kind of bad representation. Yes. And these flaws. But there's also some good representation that I wanted to talk about. There is a lot of, like, same-sex, bisexual, pansexual representation amongst Mm -hmm. the characters. That that was really great. One of the main relationships that occurs in the novel, and this might be where we get most spoilery, uh, happens between Fedra, the main character, and one of her assignations, who is to Melisande. For those who don't know, patrons. Patrons, yes. And so Melisande is a woman, and she's very powerful. She is a sadist. She's definitely a dominant. She has all of these really kind of sexy qualities, especially for Fedra, because she's able to, like, kind of please Fedra in the way that Fedra is sort of born to be. Yes. In the book, Melisande is uh, one of the descendants of Kushiel, so she has sort of an instinctual knowledge of how to activate Fedra's sort of anguisette desires. The relationship is really intense, and it's a relationship that kind of continues into the next book. There is more that even happens afterwards. Yes, though I'd have to reread it to remember what happened. And this is something else, really briefly. The first book is long. It is a lot to get through. There's a lot of setting up. There's a lot of building, world building going on. A lot of a names. Lot. A lot of names. A lot of names. Yes. There is a Dramatis Persona in the beginning, and I definitely had to reference the Dramatis Persona. Because there's a lot of names, and a lot of the names are associated with different titles, and people are getting new titles throughout this book. Right. So yes, the little bit in the beginning of the book, it's also on the audiobook as well as the Kindle version. There is a list of names that you can reference in the beginning, which is useful. There is a lot of names. And I will say that the first book is a little slower and has a lot more going on than the second book's more focused. So I've heard a lot of people say that they enjoyed the second book even more than the first one because it gets more focused. Yeah. So... Well, it doesn't have to do the heavy lifting of doing all the world building. Exactly. I also think on the positive side of representation, it is a very female-heavy cast. Very. The protagonist is feminine. The antagonist is feminine. feminine. The Uh, queen. The queen uh, is feminine. Obviously, yeah. (laughs) And a lot of the uh, struggles that Fedra has to go through is because... A lot of people doubt the queen's ability to actually lead the nation. Also, besides just the amazing female representation and also same-sex representation that we have in this book, we also get a little bit of bending gender roles with Hyacinth. Okay. um, Which is something that I really enjoyed about his character. Could you elaborate on that? Because I I did not read that at all. Okay. Yes, so he has this gift of the Dramond, or curse of the Dramond, if you want, uh, which is sort of like being able to see some of the future. Yes. Gain insight into the future. And that is a very feminine thing in his culture. It is something that men are not allowed to do, and his 
culture asks him, his, his community, his family, they ask him to abandon it, to give it up because that is nothing for a man to do. And he kind of is like, my mom taught me this, and this is something that I feel like I have to bear this responsibility. So in a way, I really read into him sort of bending the gender roles of his community. Okay. I I guess I see where you're coming from. Uh, I guess I didn't relate it so much because of the magical, like, it's harder for me to, what's the word I'm looking for? sympathize with somebody who has a magical ability as sort of bending gender roles sympathize isn't the right word i don't know what the, i forget what the right word is but relate that was the word it's harder for me to relate to somebody who has magical abilities it's not like gender presentation which is something that i struggle with but i, I see where you're coming from now yeah because in a lot of different cultures there are things that are actions or our jobs or skills that are assigned to one gender or another or so yeah. on. There's a, recently I just saw a book, a graphic novel called Witch Boy. Okay. And it's about a boy who wants to learn to do witch things in his community, which uh, like talking to the trees and things like that. But in, in his little culture, society, family, that is reserved only for girls, and he gets to do shape-shifting because he's a guy, but he doesn't want to do that. He wants to be able to do what they do. He wants to make potions and stuff. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was sort of my read on Hyacinth. But also a big, another big theme that I enjoyed about this novel is the theme of sticking to your vow. Making a big commitment and sticking to it. I think we see that in a lot of the characters. I think we see both in its positive aspect and its negative aspect. Of course. Because a lot of the reasons why Fetra is able to get to the end is by people breaking their vows. Uh, which is mostly Jocelyn breaking his vow yes. repeatedly for her. Yes. So Jocelyn is one of the other main characters. He is a he's in service to Cassiel. And Cassiel is the one who um, sort of protected and served Eloa. And so those who are in this sort of um, service to Cassiel are, they vow to protect and serve. And so... Well, I think it's also important to note that they, they see themselves as companions to Eloa, but not as believers in Eloa. Right. Uh, they still believe... They still believe in the one God. In the one God, but they believe that Eloa, their love sort of refined the one God's message, beliefs. I don't know. So Jocelyn does break his vow and is often pushed by Fedra to do so. And Fedra also really sticks to her vow. And often when their vows are in conflict, Fedra's vow and Jocelyn's vow, you know, Fedra's vow sort of wins over Jocelyn. Uh, there's a great moment between them where Fedra says to Jocelyn, basically like, even Cassiel bowed, uh, kneeled before Eloa or like bowed to Eloa's will. And Jocelyn replies, yes, but remember, you are not Eloa. <laughs> In other words, you're not God. So I'm, you know, I just, uh, I love the bit of banter that they have. I Actually, their relationship really grew on me. Yeah. Over the course of the novel. But one thing did kind of frustrate me. So the first time I read this, this didn't frustrate me. And this time reading it, I was like, oh, oh, no. So Fedra is super self-sacrificing throughout the whole novel. She's like, I will do anything. I will give up my life. I will whatever it takes. 
and she's willing to do it even though there's other people who are like maybe more equipped at these things than her maybe they are in a better place to do it or they just want to do it and she's so self-sacrificing i got really frustrated with her and i'm like oh i'm a little relatable like she's relatable to me as a protagonist because i too am like that sometimes yes um, and I'm like, wow, sometimes my stubbornness, like, can be frustrating. Yes. As somebody who was trying to set up the recording space. I would have been fine with the table. Yeah. Just so you know. But anyway. But you prefer sitting on the ground. But the ground is great. It's just cozy. Yes. Okay. Thank you for finally admitting it. I'm fine either way. It's just the ground is cozy. So you would have preferred it this way. Well, whatever. Anyhow. <laughs> uh, so one thing I do want to touch upon. Yes. Speaking of Fedra is Fedra having an actually really complicated relationship. Yes. Uh, with her anguiset abilities. Yeah, her masochism. Yeah. Um, which I can relate to to some extent because I have a somewhat complicated relationship with my sadistic tendencies. You know, it took me a long while to come to peace with that and there's still times where i'm like uh whoa like (laughs) are we sure we're okay with like you doing this and i think it's also i think it's good to have books where people have a complicated relationship with the powers they have uh you know oftentimes you know we see these books where people just gain these massive amounts of power and you know they just are constantly using their powers for good and they don't have like we were talking about harry potter in our pre-talk there's at no point where harry potter like has to come with like you know am i using this power for the correct purposes you know he's always like on the right path and you know like all power he gets to feet to fight voldemort is good power so i like fedra having a complicated relationship with her powers with her abilities and which i think more protagonists should have Yes, that's one of the most relatable things about her, actually. I think that's why she's such a relatable character for the people that I have talked to who have read it or who started to read it. They're like, wow, I really relate to her because she struggles with almost this. And it's like a core part of who she is, a core part of her identity. It's not just this like power that she's using. It's also like, oh, this is really a part of me. This is who I am. Yeah. And I think that that relates to I've heard masochists say it. I've heard sadists say it. For me, it has to do with DS. I really crave submitting to people. I really crave dominating people. It's like, sometimes I'm like, feel conflicted about that. Should I want to do that? Or like, why, why do I want to do that? Or like, is this the right thing for me to be, you know, having those complicated internal dialogues? She often says that she hates, she almost hates herself for it. She's like, I hate how much that I love this pain. And I have a quote, too, that I highlighted relating to that. Well, this is just about being marked by Cuscio, but it's talking about Fedra's struggle. And I think, I I can't remember who was talking to her, but they say that, you know, it's Cuscio who marked you and Cuscio whose challenge, whose you will challenge when you despise what you are. So basically saying you have to come to terms with the fact that you are marked in this way by Kushiel, and that she really struggles with it, and everybody really knows that she struggles with that. Well, not everybody, but I think her, her close friends. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, when I say everybody, I don't mean, like, oh, everybody in the whole book. 
But yeah, I just meant like those who really know her, like they can see that she's struggling so much. So one, I think one last positive thing I want to put about diversity is that there are points where Fedra is captured by enemies in the book. And I think the book does a good job of not dehumanizing her enemies. Uh, Oftentimes when we read books or watch films, the enemies of the protagonist are usually very dehumanized. You know, the orcs in Lord of the Rings, the stormtroopers in Star Wars, you know, they're very sort of faceless, essentially targets for the heroes to knock down. I think this book does a good job of like, no, like, these people that they're fighting are human beings, and they've got their own lives, and they've also probably got their own very justifiable reasons for doing what they want. Absolutely. For doing, for following the course of action they're following. It just so happens that's at cross purposes to the protagonist's course of action. Yes, and I do think that the book overall takes a very humanistic perspective. There's another quote that I will pull out. This is from chapter 55. This is sort of like Fedra's thoughts. There are those who do not hold that there is any innate goodness to mankind. To them I say, had you lived my life, you would not believe it. I have known the depths to which mortals are capable of descending, and I have seen the heights. I have seen how kindness and compassion may grow in the unlikeliest of places as the mountain flower forces its way through the stern rock. And this is when she's, like, really struggling. She's just gotten out of this horrible, tragic situation. And even then, she's willing to see there is compassion, there is kindness, there are people who care. There were even people in that really negative situation who did kind things for me. Mm -hmm. So... I agree with you that people are very humanized in this story. Do you have any other main thoughts? Let me just take a quick look at my show notes. Oh, one thought that just popped into my head that was not in the show notes about the difference between me and the me from 10 years ago. Oh, yes. Was there was a point where they were going over the various uh, implements of of uh you know like here's the taws here's the crop i remember back you know the me from 10 years ago is like i have no idea what any of these things are yeah i was like oh i know what all these things are you know what all the sadistic implements are now yeah but i think that's about it for me uh unless we want to dive into the story which i don't think we want to do no i just wanted to end with a quote that for me was really kinky that i loved okay from the book all right. Is that okay? Yes, I wait with bated breath because this is a complete surprise to me. This is a quote from Melisande. Command is for captains and generals. I have no interest in command. If you would obey, you will discern what pleases me and do it unasked. I can see why you like that quote. So that's what I wanted to end on. Okay. Because that just makes me all hot and bothered. <laughs> all right, well, I guess for my part, I would just like to say... While there are some criticisms I have of this book, and I don't think I loved it as much as M did, I would recommend this book if you... I think it's just a good book in general. It's start of an interesting trilogy, uh, which I do plan on rereading at this point, and I think it's a good read. Yes, and I clearly loved it a little bit more than G, but give it a try, and if you do end up reading it, let us know what you think. Yeah. So if you would like more of this content, please check out the link at the bottom of the show notes uh, and give us a tip. And if you want to 
find out what anguissations are and chat about this with your friends or form a book club about uh, this book, I would hope you'd share this podcast with your friends and let them know how you found out about this book. And this is G. This is M. Don't be afraid to love how you love. Love what you love. And love who you love. If you'd like to get in touch with either M or myself, you can tweet us at KNP Podcast. You can find us at knppodcast.tumblr.com. Or you can email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com. I can also see myself being a Griffin Buff. Griffin Buff? Yeah. You have a skeptical face on. Yeah. You don't think I'm brave? Like, I don't think that that's exclusive to that house. Well, none of the characteristics are exclusive to the houses. Right. So, it's, I just don't think you fit the whole thing. Okay. I think you're brave in your own way. <laughs> in your Hufflepuff way. In my Hufflepuff way. All right. Don't know exactly what that means, but I'll take it. (laughs) You like to try new foods? I do. You like to cook new foods? Are you saying I'm only brave when it comes to my culinary tastes? (laughs) That is one one area that you are very good at showing (laughs) your bravery. (laughs) 